Hi, I'm Sally Fires and welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast. Our theme in the fourth podcast is Untapped Potential. The podcast features Rosanne Hersperger, and this is the full interview with her. As well as being a microbiologist and an open science believer, she's a columnist for the Dutch NRC newspaper and a regular face on Dutch TV. She studied life science and technology at the Technical University Delft and Leiden. In this thought-provoking interview, she talks about pursuing her own research as an independent scientist and the principles of open kitchen science. My name is Rosanne Hertzberger, or, um, well, they call me Roseanne, I, I suppose, in English. Um, and I, am, uh, I consider myself a writer, a columnist, and a microbiologist. And um, I've done all those activities side by side for a ver- very long time. Uh, already during my study. I'm 34 now, so just to put that in perspective, when I studied life science and technology in Leiden and Delft, I already wrote for the university paper, the Mare in Leiden, and I uh, landed a column there that kind of got out of hand. And while I progressed in my studies, also the writing progressed. And when I graduated, uh, I graduated in Delft, more towards, let's say, the bioengineering side of things, right? But I, during my master's degree, I already became interested in food and the food industry and what they do with fermentation. Very interesting. Then I finished, I graduated, and then I went on to do a PhD. But I left Leiden, and then the question was what I'm going to do with it weird column that is not really a hobby or a side thing anymore. It's, it, it had gotten pretty big at that point. So then I wrote to NRC if they would give me a column, and they did after after a year or something of try, trial and error. So I continued during my PhD with a weekly column in NRC. So uh, in, in terms of income, like I was paid to do science, and I had some side income. Side activity was the newspaper. Then I went on and did a postdoc in the United States, transferring from basically food lactobacilli, the lactic acid bacteria that are active in a lot of our dairy fermentations. I went on to study those same, or let's say closely related lactobacilli in the context of the female reproductive tract, or if you're okay with that, I will use the word vagina. <laughs> um, so vaginal bacteria and a vaginal microbiome in sickness and health during pregnancy, during sexual activity, Uh, That was a great time in the USA. I went to St. Louis and uh, still wrote my NRC column. And then I got into a big conflict there with my supervisors, unfortunately. Very ugly for me, for them, for science as a whole. I went back with my three-month-old and I decided I had to finish a book at that point. I, I started writing a book about food technology and food chemistry going against, let's say, the whole artisanal, natural uh, story. So I was writing a book, and then I thought, what to do with science? Because writing had kind of gotten o- uh, taken over um, the function of being my income, paying the bills. So I could live as a writer at that point, but I was very sad. Like, I felt like real deep sorrow having to leave science. And then I thought, this is not a fair question. In or, out, in or out of science is not, a, I don't want it to be this black and white. Um, so I asked if I could continue as a guest researcher at the VU and I started to do research there as a guest. So I have hospitality, I, I have a bench. I have some time to do science, but not a lot. And this is, this is the current situation. So I write, I'm in the media quite a bit, TV, radio, 
but I also do a lot of talks for industry that pay very well. And every time I get a bit of money, I go back to the lab and be a researcher, unfunded, but funded by myself. So that's really cool. Uh, so you basically use your other jobs to say, buy time to do your research. Uh, in some sense, it's not very different from the university, actually. They're, they People also teach to buy time for their research or write grants. And in the hospital. I mean, uh, doctors who do research do it almost always next to a full practice with patients. So I saw that with my own mother, uh, who is a um, MD a researcher, who only had like 20 or 30% time to dedicate to science. And I believe that to have the luxury to devote 100% of your time to science is a, is a very rare and is also not very realistic. What I would like to do is find alternative business models, basically. Stuff that's going to pay for science. So, um, yeah, and for me personally, I found my business model. It's, you know, I, I don't have as much of time to devote to science. For instance, these weeks I have a four-month old at home, so uh, life is a bit uh, hectic at this moment, but I'm in it for the long run. So I just want science to, in the coming, well, for my whole active life, basically, to be part of my life. That's it. So I can compare, and that's actually from one of your own talks, you can compare it with a hobbyist musician who takes it a bit more serious than just doing it uh, every now and then and then does music very seriously without earning money from music. Is that a good comparison as a business model? Um, yes. Um, yes, I think that's a good comparison. And there and it makes sense to make these comparisons. I also like the comparison with the marathon ru runner um, who there's only a very few people in the Netherlands who can be professional runners. And all the other runners have to do But even in, in, in soccer or even in any other sports, there's lots of people who have to make some living next to their sports, but are, can be considered real, let's say serious, in it, uh, uh, competitive sportsmen and women. Yeah. So we'll come back to this uh, communities uh, back, but I want to have, ask you a few questions about the, the form of your science activities, actually. How do you do it, for example? Where do you get your questions? Where do you get your inspirations for new questions? Or is it you have chosen such a big problem that you know that you will be working on it for 10 years? Uh, so how, how, how is your interactions on the scientific uh, level with the rest of the scientific community organized? Yeah, that's, that's a good question because that was, um, it's very intimidating to go back to science and say, hi, I'm not going to be funded, but can I help out? Because it's, I, you know, maybe you wanted to have his job or you wanted to, it, it can also, it, it is regarded sometimes as a loss, right? As, as, as a, a demotion instead of a promotion to leave academia. Luckily, I had very good interactions with both the professors that I worked with in my master's degree, uh, my supervisors during my uh, PhD, and all the, the whole lactic acid bacteria community. What helped me, well, I came back with a question. So I had a lot of unpublished science at my hands because my postdoc was ending in a conflict and all this stuff all this knowledge that we generated together this works this doesn't work this is correlated with this we don't know whether it's really causing it but we see this and this and all that we didn't publish and that's um so i came back i couldn't really use that that's still problem because that's really valuable stuff that we 
got together, reproducible, solid stuff that we saw. But I had a lot of other questions. And I don't think that lack of questions was ever a problem. Like science is always 1% inspiration, 99% transpiration. So it's always, I've always an, a huge experimental wish list uh, that I can never, never finish. And I, I think that that is recognizable for a lot of people. The other thing I do is I go to conferences. So I pay for that myself, which is very expensive, but also very fun. I always had great a great time, like almost like a vacation. Like like, and if you see your science as a love, as something that, and you you don't feel the stress, you know, of having to be accomplished, having to be better than everybody else, then suddenly it's a whole lot of fun, and to interact with the other researchers, to see uh, great talks, and I. I'm really impressed by by the, the level of presentation and the level of interaction at those conferences. Like you can walk up to basically everybody and have a talk. So I'm going to South Africa in December to go to one of the Keystone conferences there and present my work. Probably only a poster. I don't know. I'm going to, tr- you know, fingers crossed. Not everything depends on it. Visit some family in South Africa also. So it, it takes a bit of, let's say, courage to go there and not feel like an imposter, right? To say, I can be a credible part of this community. I have enough expertise and skill and knowledge to ask interesting questions, to have meaningful interaction, and also to progress my own thinking. So I would encourage everybody to go to conferences. And maybe conferences can also kind of make sure that people feel included also when they leave academia to have like special rates or something, not only for students, academia students, but also for people who left the field, basically. Sometimes doing research is very intensive because you hit on a problem, you cannot just sleep because, you know, you have found this new factor that you just want to spend more time, you just lose a matter of time. Does this thing happen to you while do you research? And if it happens, how do you manage the conflict between this and your other things that you know you have to do because you have promised? Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. A lot of the times when you're really busy as a researcher, those are also the best times because you're onto something and, and uh, you're almost obsessing about it. I was able to work with Professor Remco Kort at the VU, and he came with a whole bunch of strains that he had isolated, sequenced, you could say you are using academia funds and you're just continuing with that. So I am really using that, all right? So I can't pay for that myself to have all those sequences done and everything. But we were looking for some behaviors that are relevant for the, va- for the vaginal context. And we found that six out of 20, like a real nice group, didn't show certain metabolism. And we started looking, we didn't find anything. And then I kind of made a mistake in my bioinformatics. I'm not a great informatician. I tried to do both. And that was around Christmas, and we were about to leave for a holiday break. And I was just sitting in my computer, and I thought, oh, if the next strain also has this mutation, and then it did. And then the next strain, if it also has this mutation, and it did. So it matched up black and white. And I was so enthusiastic, and my husband was like, come to bed you cannot, and I had a, I have two little babies at home. So, um, yeah, that was very intensive, and it was very exciting also. So you get the fun of it. You get the excitement of it, and that's just such a, yeah, that's great. Yeah. But these are the flow moments. Do you tend to create those for yourself by dedicating a specific time to research? 
And my question was basically, if it happens, how do you manage? My experience is that you're going to find the time, right? And if, if it has to wait for a week, it will have to wait for a week. I will have to go make some money and then come back and then do it then. Luckily, I'm not, let's say, not a lot of people depend on my work. It's all extra, right? I hope that people will see it. I hope that I have enough impact with it because I do hope that, right? It's not only fun. I do want to mean something for the field and for, for humanity as a whole. Let's put the big values out there. I think scientists should do that more. Yeah, so sometimes I do need to take a break. But I mean, that is not very much different than a professor who has to go back to teaching in September or a doctor who has a patient coming in on the ER. So it is all part of the deal. And uh, it's just really enjoyable to have this uh, on the side. So do you find it easier to collaborate with with other people who, like you, do it uh, sort of for fun or with say, academicians who do it as part of their job as well. Uh, you already said there is a different setting because they have the title and they have the position yeah. and they sort of should be open to this acceptance. Do you see organizations of, let's call it, Kitchen Open Scientists uh, forum? So as a matter of fact, I'm starting one myself. Uh, so I've, I've done, uh, I, I was, yes, uh, last year I was in a pretty big TV show, which is called Zomergasten. So I had, uh, I spent like three hours in an interview uninterrupted. It's pretty intense and also great. And there I talked about this wish to not only be a life scientist, but be a scientist for life. And uh, a lot of people responded then. They said, I am, res- I want this because I'm fed up with academia. I don't want the competition anymore and there's a lot of complaining right in academia going on about the funds about everything and what we do is kind of make something positive out of it and i also wrote two columns about it because in the meanwhile i do have some public stage so i uh, people take notice of what i say and if i i, I have some agenda setting power some if it doesn't catch on it doesn't uh, and i should let it go but so i wrote a few columns about it too and a lot of people responded to me if, uh, first, it was only women, because it's a lot of women, actually, who, f- who feel most, who love science and who also feel most, uh, let's say, rejected by the academic community and, b- and about the ongoing competition. Um, great scientists who, who, did, who had great academic careers or who were just fed up. A lot of them also with private issues, with having to match uh, family life and uh, science life. Uh, now also men, mathematician, bankers, economists, consultants who say, I miss science and I would like to continue. So we're getting together. We're about 15 people now of who I believe like five or six really started uh, doing this. And the 10 others are just researching, right? What are their options? What is their life after academia? Or is there... And, and then there's the academia... Uh, there's um, researchers who are in academia who, who do not want to leave but are interested in the open kitchen science principles. So the idea is I have drawn up a few principles, let's say, guidelines for my, what I want science to look like. Because if you're going to do science after academia, you're going to do it your way, right? You're not going to, uh, I mean, all the things that were bugging you 
and that you didn't like about academia, you also want to leave behind. So no, let's say, fighting over author orders. No keeping your cards against your chest because you're afraid that people are going to steal your ideas. A true radical transparency. And a lot of people want that. It also means that I want to stop speaking hocus-pocus jargon. I want to make it more accessible. Also show the story behind it. So when I wrote, I, I had that bigger finding... I took some time to write it down, actually, because I really wanted to write it down the way I like it. Single author. So um, I've worked together with Alicia, who's a bioinformatician from Groningen, who also wants to continue science outside her regular job. Um, She did some of the bioinformatics, and I wanted her to write her part, because I want to hear her voice. Uh, Something I dislike and I had a growing issue with is writing with eight authors or ten authors. We create unreadable texts, whether it's pretty straightforward. If you ask, like, what? so what does this text say? Oh, we just found this great enzyme that cuts this reaction that we didn't know. All right, okay, so why didn't you write that down? Well, because that's not the way we speak to each other. And that's fine. Like, every every culture has their own language and science has their own language. But I also want, I wanted to show also the uncertainty. So, for instance, I have one experiment that, shows uh, a bit outlying data. Uh, I'm still pretty much convinced that this is this thing is real. And I included the data and, and just said, guys, I have no way, I have no reason to discard this data set. I'm going to include it. And I don't know. This happened. And so, so uh, to show the uncertainties, to show the raw data, to show the, uh, uh, the protocols for the media, for the essays. Um, yeah, I'm showing that yes and that's how you are forming this organization my belief is that it should have some sort of a quality control so i know that playing around with this science and with open science is serious business it's not just let's go out and run a 10 miler uh, on the beach on a sunday morning it is less innocent because science has authority So we need to make sure we have some sort of quality control. And I know this because I get weekly, when I write about vaccination, I get, hi, I'm a psychologist. I have a PhD in psychology and I studied vaccination and it's all bullshit. So what I'm afraid of is that these people are going to go out and say, I'm not in academia, but I'm doing open kitchen science. And now I'm showing how vaccination causes autism. I'm afraid of economists who start to study climate science. I'm like... I, we have to be very careful. So I have also rejected some people that I believe are do not do, let's say, real credible research or, or let's say curiosity, not even curiosity oriented, but um, ha- apply the scientific method, right? That's what science is. Um, so we are trying to draw up these principles. I'm not asking them to jump a high fence, but I want to make sure that they're either in a PhD trajectory or have a PhD, and they're doing science in their field of expertise. And then they're, they're, uh, I think they they can be uh, off to a good start. Uh, It was exactly my question. How should a society of open scientists correct itself? Uh, You already said you have some ideas. Yeah. Is this a dedicated job or is it a collective job? How how should the self-governance come to... Uh, protect the credibility of the science that an open institute like you're suggesting uh, will generate? Yeah. So I'm not an expert on this, right? I'm going to say that from the get-go. 
um, I just know where I want to go. And um, I do know that it, it's not only about me anymore. Uh, like I wanted to do this for myself. Uh, but I noticed that a lot of people want to do it for themselves. And what we can mean for each other is credibility, provide each other with credibility, and also provide each other with a credible academic career, uh, career trajectory. We are a big herd, right? Herd animals. And we look at each other. And the reason why we do things is we will always say there's these and these reasons for it, but 90% of it is because the others do it. Uh, that looks really bad if you say it, but it is true. So um, I think we should have a, a mini sub herd who chooses this to make it more, uh, to, to help people follow this trajectory. A lot of people have ideas, but if they know that there's a, a group of 20 or 30 people out there in the Netherlands or elsewhere in the world who do this, they can come to a meeting, say, how do you do this? How do you present yourself? How do you put your PowerPoint presentation online? How do you present your data? And if you have enough like critical mass, I believe you can really change something. And there's, just to uh, emphasize this, it is a gigantic loss. We are very wasteful with our human resources in science, right? You said it yourself, nine out of 10 people, or the numbers are even bigger. Uh, we're very wasteful with people that we educate, that we give a great education, paid with public money to become independent researchers. And then the moment they are an independent researcher, they stop doing independent research and start making money for industry or teach or take care of patients, but do something else. And it's very, uh, it's really a pity that at this moment, these people don't feel the need or the, let's say, the space to continue using their expertise for the benefit of science. And I think if we can employ or draft this huge group of people, their knowledge um, to, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if you look at, if you look at your, your science, my science, we generate big data. We don't study all this data. We generate way more data than we can chew. So, I mean, it would be great. And I'm also doing that, right? I'm studying the sequences, the genome sequences that were generated that are not being studied at this moment. Well, not really, but I mean, right? I believe there's a, there's a lot of room for more research and there's a lot of a big group that would love to do it. So what else would you like the university to do for giving more room to such type of sort of activity which is not formally closed ivory tower academia but helps it a lot so what should the university do to gain uh, the benefits of such activity which is huge i totally agree i think there's two things you can provide your alumni with access to your laboratories to your uh, talks to your even if you're afraid of confidentiality some th sort of thing you can still have them sign keep the access to literature, maybe, uh, to lab space, to machines, to stuff. If it's not a huge burden, and often it can be, it can be organized. And if you allow them to publish everything transparently, that's one thing. I think that's what they can mean. And it's, it's costly, I know. I mean, my hospitality is also not for free, right? That's a gift from university to me, but I hope that uh, that it can it can right, pay off, right? 
so okay that's that's one thing we rely heavily on the phd system i i believe we will continue to do that because after master's degree people need some education to become a researcher we all agree on that i believe uh, what they can do is practice radical transparency so everything that doesn't need really need to be closed because of whatever you want to make money of it or patent it or something open it put all your protocols online dedicate some time to your websites improve them be on social media uh, sh- throw your posters online live stream your talks or let's say have as a requirement to whenever there's a talk somebody presenting that there's also a version of that online yeah give access and um, not only to your papers, but on also to everything that goes on behind the scenes. That's second. And that's th- those are two very important things. So access to the uh, laboratory and access to your information. And I'm, I, I hope that, you, that everybody can see that the Open Kitchen scientists will give back and they will provide the data and for, and I mean, even if you look at it practically, right? So I have this finding, this protein that I believe, or this gene basically that has a mutation, I believe it's closely correlated with their ability to have some sort of, to, uh, with their metabolism, glycogen metabolism. So I have this finding, it's not part of a paper. That's not my principle because for me, I don't need any more papers. I Maybe I don't want any more papers, but the students that I work with who did, who have done all the work of sequencing, isolating those things, I also know what they need. They need papers. So if I'm going to say, no, no, this is this experiment I did, it can't be part of a paper. No, I want it to be part of a paper because that's what they need. And w- nowadays, publishers, they are okay with stuff appearing online before it appears with uh, in, a, in a journal, especially when it's a personal blog like mine. Uh, but also preprint servers. Well, you know the deal, right? I, I believe that's a great development, and it w- also allow open kitchen scientists to credibly work in together with academia. Yep. So that's that's great. So, and I also understand. Maybe you have also mentioned this, but I've been in several labs that you open the cupboard. There's this instrument, and say, well, "What is this?" Say, oh, this has been about ten years ago, but the PhD graduated, and nobody else knew how to use it, so it has been in the cupboard since then. And there have been activities to create a marketplace of sort of untapped instrument time uh, for public or even for other universities. I totally understand, although this clearly needs organization. And I hope the more users come and there is a pressure from from it. The point of giving access to alumni, I didn't think, but I think it's, it's very clever too, because uh, it you now relates to the alumni, which has a, has a bond and use the name. And so there is, there is some... Uh, confidence in them acting uh, uh, integrable. They're your own offspring. Can I say one more? I forgot one more point where they can help. Uh, One thing that all the open kitchen scientists are dealing with is a lack of professionalization. So suddenly these people have to become bloggers, right? Me too. And my blog, you can see that there's not a whole lot of money in, let's say it's a pretty basic WordPress blog. So um, I believe what university can help with, and they have these big systems, is uh, to say... Maybe even host the blogs, right? I think that can be very valuable and and host and, and and doable also, where you don't only provide credibility to say, hey, this person we educated them, they have their PhD from our university, we buy what they do with some sort of standard quality control, 
and we will host the blog. I think that should be, and, and then it also looks more professional. You don't have to s study too much to become a blogger. Uh, you can also throw probably the data and the methods in a repository. Yeah. You agree, you already mentioned that we do need curators of good science, either the community itself or the system. So do we need also, let's say, dedicated professional curation of open science that is done in this community-wise? Do you see that also happening? Because maybe that's a bit more the boring side of you know, uh, research. It's not always new finding, but provide uh, credibility to others, make sure this is uh, rigorous or go through the data and make sure there is no uh, fault in it. And at the university, people in academia, they are sort of sort of afraid of their reputation. So there is this self-control. Sometimes it goes out of hand, but most of the times it actually functions pretty well. There's peer review. Again, there are discussions on that, but it's a mechanism meant for controlling this. So how should the open scientists that sort of uh, submit to your code of conduct for open kitchen science do this curation? Who dedicates time and who sort of takes charge of making sure the balance is there? Yeah. Yeah, then you're looking at, uh, um, for instance, alternative peer review, right? So I already proposed uh, a certain way of doing quality control. Uh, so to have some certain basic standards of, of, of education, but also topic-wise, right? We don't want people to diverge too much away from their expertise. Just to see how that is done in regular, let's say, conventional science uh, with peer review. I believe peer review, at least in my field of life sciences, has gotten out of hand. Tremendously, radically. Can you explain how? We only communicate with each other through the the filter of peer review. And I think that is not only very wasteful of our time, but also it means that a lot of information stays closed. Because people have no, let's say, they don't know any other way to communicate with each other than having your standard anonymous peer review for journals, right? So that's, I believe that's why posters don't get online. Why do, why do I go in South Africa? There's a conference. There's going to be like maybe a thousand posters, right? Information that researchers put on a poster, they believe credible enough for those thousand, whatever people who come to the conference, but not credible enough to put online because I don't see those posters online. Maybe, maybe 5% of them. Yeah, well, some people say that, oh, these are preliminary results. And in one or two years, if it happens to become big, then I might get a reviewer said, oh, this I've seen two years ago in the conference, so the novelty is questioned. And I think that's the most prolific reason why people don't put posters online. Yeah, well, and if you want to have credible, let's say reproducible, reproducibility standards, then that whole novelty, it's not the newspaper, right? For the newspaper, it has to be novel. But, and even for the newspaper, like it doesn't have to be news, right? If it's background or if it's, if it's other lines of evidence showing the same thing, then uh, let's say that's good enough. That's important. We need that. We need that backup, that validation, that, that quality control also. If that person would have published it, her or his poster online at the moment she went to the conference, she could have been able to tell the reviewer, yeah, that was our work. Yeah. You saw it there. We published it already or we were already working on that in 2009 
In 2011, we found this. In 2013, we found that. And now that's leading up to a bigger paper where we think we have understood the mechanism of this whatever metabolism. And now also we have put everything together and believe we have a bigger story. Now is the time we believe peer review. We need peer review to kind of validate this. I believe peer review is a silver standard of quality control. You've heard me say this before. Like quality control is, is let's say, has many faces in my view. Peer review, looking at each other's data is one way. It's not the most effective way to me. I buy science when there's like three different labs who independently find the same thing, not using necessarily the same tissue culture, the same strains, the same assays, but there's really multiple lines of evidence that this, let's say, phenomenon is not only real in the fake artificial world you create in your lab, but is true across the board, even if you slightly change parameters. There has been a reproducibility crisis, or at least not a crisis where people have been fraudulous, but just the results that they obtained were only true in their hands and not in everybody's hands. So we need to work, and, and everybody has said this in multiple shape or forms. This is not new, right? The golden standard of quality control is reproducibility, and not necessarily reproducing it with your tissue culture, but showing... I mean, in those cancer studies where one gene or one marker was involved with this tumor, probably there, have, there are like, this is a very competitive field, right? There are 20 labs working on that same question. And there's 19 out of those 20 have found that that gene is not involved with that tumor, but because they don't publish negative results or they, they're not fully transparent, this one person who breaks the P.05 mark will publish and without the other lab saying hey i'm sorry but this is just not true in our hands so there must be consensus before we really call it credible science and not only novelty or one finding and i think more people say that uh, there is continuously the issue in the interviews i have that of course many journals who want to be ahead of the at the limit of science they don't want to publish consensus because that's all the stuff they want to uh, publish big news and that's the discussion that how are we going to do it but I understand that uh, you say if I don't have to publish in glossy journals if I don't want to then I don't see the the motivation of actually going for novelty being the first and uh, and that very much comes back to the fact that you do have the, the safety of just being independent and being able to fund yourself and don't have to uh, participate in competitions that you don't like. Right. It's like the marathon runner. You don't have to go to a competition that everybody uses, I don't know, drugs. You just go to a healthy competition. Okay. That I understand, yeah. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. I mean, we can talk long and hard about how horrible it is that all these egos are in science. But of course, I have my own ego too, and you have your own ego. If you accomplish something, you want to have the credits for it. That's just basic human nature probably I don't know it's very unscientific of me to say that but um right I do believe that that's going to continue and and if you're going to publish earlier your findings you're also going to see a lot of rubbish published because people are going to rush towards publishing their results if they don't require the bigger story then open kitchen science becomes a new hazard for quality right because the newspaper if I'm a scientific a science journalist I go like wow this this 
Alzheimer mouse was cured with this really crazy and even if you put a lot of science like unvalidated not peer-reviewed speculative whatever uh, still I can see newspapers who want to say hey this person has cured an Alzheimer mouse right so uh, yeah that's a problem and that's that's also a hazard I'm you know I, I do see the pitfalls of, of it but I also see what's to gain and the problem is people the best science is scooped science so we need to look at scooping each other differently. Actually, the person who gets scooped should get a prize, yeah. should be like put their papers together and say, this we believe because this has come from two independent labs. And we believe that this gene is really involved because they found it in multiple labs. I, I mean, my PhD, I, I accidentally scooped a lab in Florida who published a few months after me, exactly the same gene, found the same gene to be involved with the same behavior of bacteria. And I, on the one hand, I've, I felt sad because that person also needs a PhD and that also needs to be impact factors in the funds. And at the same time, I was like, I sent him an email and said, wow, we were completely parallel to each other, which also sad because we've done double work. But I mean, we need double work, right? Uh, but we could have strengthened uh, we could have used that to strengthen each other more. Yeah. Some labs I know they do this and they, they are successful, which is which is a good thing. And I mean, you mentioned the ego. I wanted to say something. Of course, it all comes to the definition of uh, sort of success or reputation. That a bit on, depends on the community, uh, in my view, because you know, if I define reputation and the number of likes, I can never, you know, compete with this and that celebrity, which have, I don't know, millions of followers, and they have to change, you know, my subject. Of course, my uh, pride is in the fact of who reads, who cites some fields. Uh, some people say who uses my result of research, and some of these things come very, very uh, late. And it's a bit like in the support of the community to you know, support you until the moment arrives that it's okay if you, you get your reward in five years, which is your, you know, cure being used. Until then, we support you, we still like you, we respect you, we talk to you. Uh, so that's where I think some people who are more patient get their, uh, uh, their rewards in the interaction with the community. That's how I see it. Uh, you have written actually a book, uh, uh, if I translate it, it's in the honor of e-numbers. These are the numbers which you put on, on the uh, food uh, products, which is defense of, let's say, traditional authoritarian science of actually support for facts. Is it a good interpretation of that book? <laughs> yes. We are trying to sell the translation rights. At some point, I'm just going to translate it myself because I, w I want to have the impact. The impact impacts everything also in writing yes so oh the english title is in defense of processed food right it is in defense of food chemistry and food technology and technology to make our food better right and um i um i i kind of defend food additives uh as safe good ways to improve color taste texture uh shelf life of products now at the same time so that's the science part the interesting thing, and that's what I'm exploring now a lot in my talks and in my um, in my other, let's say, research, is the irrationality of people. So the interesting part is I can say, I can tell everybody this stuff is safe, 
It's even useful if you don't want to throw away your food all the time. Maybe add some preservatives to it for once and a better preservative than salt. So I can, I can say this, but people will still decide on their gut feeling what is edible or not. In the Netherlands, we don't think that horse meat is edible. In, Fla- in Flanders, in Belgium, they're fine with it. They don't have any problem with it. So we, like, it's culturally very, um, let's say, we, it, nobody eats evidence-based, right? Uh, nobody says, uh, oh, eating your dog is uh, completely safe. It makes sense because you're going to throw that meat away, but you're not, not going to do it because of culture, because the way we, we decide what is edible or not. So that's there's an interesting uh, there's an interesting uh, interaction between science and emotion, science and irrationality of humans. Uh, the other part that I found interesting is that we want to accomplish a few bigger goals in in the world. Let's say we have we're dealing with a climate crisis, we're dealing with an obesity crisis, and food can help in different aspects to uh, help uh, mitigate those crises. And the funny thing is, the more irrational you become, sometimes that helps. So I believe that we should thank Hinduism, like uh, belief, religion. Uh, we should thank religion that, let's say, 900 million Indians don't eat meat. Um, and if we, because we are so sorry for animals, uh, we getting rid of the bio-industry and thereby, uh, thereby not have a climate crisis, that's perfectly fine by me. That's irrationality, that's belief, that is human emotion towards animals that will help us get rid of a crisis. Yeah, so I believe there's some power in this ir- irrationality that will get us to the right way. And this, by the way, this irrationality is also playing a big role in science. Yeah. It's another system of beliefs which interacts in some stages with science you can also tell it about traditions about uh, the stories i mean they are the ways that they have uh, organized their cultures and they have organized their societies it's has not been always based on scientific method so that's the interaction i understand but the thing i want to ask you in this case uh, is that do we need an authority because I ask, I use this word because I read that you are a bit allergic to authority. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do we need a central authority in defense of so curated, established science? My answer is no. Um, and people, this is the point where most people disagree with me. So that, I get the most backlash from this uh, so, so when they say, who's going to control quality? Uh, should everybody just be free to call themselves a scientist? I say no, but to a certain point, yes. And that is, I compare it a lot to writing and to journalism. There is luckily no control on who gets to call themselves a journalist. Often, scientists come up with this idea. Who controls all these journalists? Why do we let... Uh, let's say the rubbish British press, for instance, mislead a whole people to want a Brexit. Uh, why do? Why is there no quality control for journalism? Well, there is because you, you have to publish in the newspaper. But internet has also brought a lot of freedom, right? And it has generated both the ugly side of things and the good side of things. I see really good, high quality 
background journalism being done that maybe hadn't been done for the newspaper. And also the other side, you see the most horrible real fake news, uh, real fake news, and corruption and misleading, uh, misleading texts on the internet. So you see both. I believe that power has to be controlled and both media and science have this rule. So I am afraid of a central authority and I believe that even if you have fake science and people who will call themselves scientists, you already have those now, right? Uh, The quality control at this moment should take most of them out and say, this has not been peer-reviewed, this has not been published in a credible journal, this has not been done at a credible university, whatever. This moment, quality control tries to, or, or let's say the way we organize science tries to take those out. But there's an expense because it also throws out 90% of academia and uh, like there, it also means you're very wasteful. So in my, uh, let's say, science future uh, utopia, um, there is quality control. It's, let's say the mass will control and will reject, will openly communicate about each other's results and theref- therefore find the truth Wikipedia is my model. But um, it will also mean that there's going to be fake news presented as science. More than is now. And it also means that science will maybe lose a bit of authority overall, let's say, with the public. Because there's just more people who are in it. There's things that go wrong and are corrected afterwards. But maybe the damage has already been done. Right. So at the same time, science authority has, is already quickly eroding in the public. So if you, ask, uh, if you ask the public, how much do you trust politicians? How much, how much do you trust journalists? How much do you trust scientists? How much do you trust doctors, etc.? The science authority is pretty high still, very high. But I do believe that there's more and more questions. And it's... Because industry is funding a lot of science. For my book, I've had to discard whole sections just for the sheer fact that there was no independently funded research showing the same, let's say, confidence or giving me some confidence that this stuff was real, especially in life cycle analyses, especially in how sustainable is it to ship apples from New Zealand and eat them here in Europe. We rely on science to tell us that. And that science is funded by New Zealand apple growers. So they will tell, tell us, no, no, food kilometers are really bu- bullshit. If you <clears throat> buy these apples from New Zealand, it's completely sustainable. And these life cycle analysis are just too fishy. They're just too, too many knobs you can turn to change the numbers in your advantage. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that, that, that all authority in society, there's some erosion going on in all aspects, and science is pretty high still. And I believe that we have to erode it a bit further to be able to really pick the fruit, to change the system. Yeah. But to you show would the, if the moment you show what goes wrong, the moment you provide transparency into your process, that's going to be great for, let's say, the results of science, but not great for the confidence. So you say that transparency and communication trumps 
authority on quality control of science. Is that a good summary? Quality control is a question, right? Wikipedia has pretty good quality. At the same time, <laughs> to be honest, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but it, I believe that, the, uh, that efficiency is pretty important because we need science. Let's say how we view things is one thing. What it really, I mean, what it means for society, the data that it can generate, the innovations that it can help start the the solutions for big problems uh i think maybe are more important than uh losing authority is a threat but losing efficiency and you need more opportunities that's is that what i'm uh understanding yeah it's a bit vague right this talking but um yeah it's I do believe that um, the way we organize it now with this very, let's say, stringent peer review and if it's not novel enough, the impact factor, etc. that whenever something goes wrong in science and there's whatever, or scenic life published in science, that is a very strong erosion of, um, of authority. The question is whether if you have arsenic life and then immediately, let's say, 10 other experiments published saying, oh, we d- we're not finding the same thing, whether that's going to increase credibility or decrease it. I don't know. I think it increases. Yeah. And I think it has been the case. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, if those cancer studies that are not reproducible, if you show that there's not one real scientific truth always, but that there's multiple perspectives, that there's uh, that, that the same tissue culture behaves different in different labs, what can the public then still believe is true? That's a very good question. Uh, and I think it's a, certainly a topic for a, a complete discussion. Uh, I have one more question. So what do you see Rep Labs? That's how you call Rep Lab. Yeah. Maybe first you say, what does it stand for? It was Rebellious Laboratory. And it, 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 so just to, just to give you my, when I thought of this, imagine I was at home with a seven-week-old baby, just quit at my job because I was afraid that I'd get fired. And if I'd get fired, I'd lose my status. I'd be an illegal alien instantly. Me, my husband, and not my son because he's an American. But I was stressed. And the thing I cared about most was an experiment that I wanted to do, right? And, and the experiments that were on my wish list. And I was like, if I don't get back to the lab, I will not be able to do this and this and this and this and this. And then I thought, this is an, a solvable problem. Why am I not? At, and the initial idea, I'll tell you honestly, was how can I do this stuff at home? So can I, for instance, buy whatever potato starch and then an incubator? Can I keep something at 37 degrees even? Can I have an anaerobic chamber? Maybe if I burn a, a, a burn a candle in a plastic bag, I can create this anaerobic atmosphere and then I can grow these bugs or I can even, you know, do experiments on myself, whatever. So I love science a lot, as you can hear. And, um, and I thought I'm going to be rebellious. I really felt that the system, I could not fit in to the system anymore and um, I really needed to find a way to do science let's say outside of the system 
because I knew I was not going to land a new postdoc. I knew I was not going to land funding without the, without the papers, without the credibility. I went to the United States and came back with nothing. Like I was pretty, it was pretty ugly for me. And then I thought, let's make the best out of it. And then first I thought, let's start my own lab. And then I thought, no, 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 no. And I also didn't need, like, not whole academia was against me. My supervisors, the people that I worked with in the Netherlands, were so very much welcoming me to think with them, to even work with them. And uh, Remco Kort and at the VU, they even gave me uh, hospitality. So all ended well. Not everything. Like, I did have some loss there of years. But it ended well, and I hope to get most of it most out of it uh it reminds me of the saying i don't know i know in farsi but i don't know if it is a good translation in english but uh it tells to tell uh to transfer or to translate a big sorrow into a big project and i think that's a description of what you have done the big sorrow you turn it into a big project and now that we know rep lab is the rebellious lab where do you see rep labs in five years what do you think it has achieved and what's its surrounding what it's in its conditions in five years i hope that i was able to do let's say two or three let's say findings i'm i'm literally saying findings as in i probably don't have the the time and the money to really really do take it to the take it to the end to really double down on it but at least show the community hey I found this, I found this, I found this. Maybe this is useful for you. Is this true in your hands? So two or three more of those, like impactful blog posts. That's what I'm talking about. Second, I hope to have some peer review done. So, and, and then in the sense of real people, people looking at my data openly. Third, I hope to have one reproducibility case. So, so basically a lab who says, we're finding the same thing and we're willing to, let's say, validate that. Put that together with your finding to say, hey, this is pretty strong. We're going somewhere here. I hope to still have hospitality. Uh, hopefully at the VU, I'm very happy there. But I mean, wherever it takes me. I hope to have a group of open kitchen scientists together. And maybe even some funding. You could think of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I'm not good at money. But you could think of some, let's say, finance to say to reimburse the universities for hosp for having us come to the lab. I hope that we have a professionalization step in our uh, communication, in our blog posts, and I hope to have, yeah, to still have a credible business model in open kitchen science. That's what I hope. Uh, oh yeah, and to be cited. <laughs> I want to have, let's say five citations or six citations okay and other people using by citing you mean cited in papers or just cited in works or other blogs or cited in writing scientific writing so other people say hey it does look like lactobacillus crispatus utilizes glycogen and it utilizes it using this type 1 pulinase and that was shown in reblab.org slash da 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 that's what i hope so that's a pretty uh, like concrete wish. So in five years, you should come back and say, well, Roseanne, you're here and here. This has happened, but this has not happened. But yeah. what are you going to do? We will definitely do Great. I, I think it's, it's a very clear vision, and I'm, I'm pretty sure by uh, your determination, you will achieve, if not these, but equally valuable things. Thank you very much, Roseanne Erzberger. Thank you, Sonny. It was a pleasure.
You've been listening to the Road to Open Science full interview podcast. My guest was Rosanne Hersperger. If you want to know more about Rosanne and check out her latest research outcome, head to her blog reblab.org. She publishes everything there. Thanks go to Rosanne for joining the podcast. You can hear a shorter version of this interview in episode 4 of the podcast with the title Untapped Potential. That podcast also featured Egon Willighagen, a researcher and long-term open scientist at Maastricht University. Please subscribe to our feed and share it with your friends so that they can also listen to this podcast. We want to have as wide a discussion as possible on open science. And we'd love to know what you think about the podcast. You can get in touch via Twitter with the handle at sign R2OS podcast with a numeric 2. Research for the podcast is from Marisa Moll and editing by Andy Clark. From me, San Lifaes, thanks for listening.